Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael Cravens, and I am your host. And I will start with an apology, an apology for the delay in shows. I took a little time off for a vacation. Man, I've been all over from clear Ozark streams chasing native and wild smallmouth bass to to our very own white mountains here in arizona uh, going after big old football shaped rainbow trout it's been a blast but we are back and i have got one heck of a show to kick off our return today today we are listening to nate danforth nate is a falconer and i don't know how to put this this was probably one of the most fascinating conversations I've had. I had no idea of the depth and intensity of, of what falconers do. It's crazy. I mean, it's it's very complicated. I mean, there's layers upon layers to this stuff. My little boy has, has wanted a falcon since he read My Side of the Mountain. He's only 10 years old. But I'm way too much of a generalist to do this. I, I like to do too many things. And this is not something you can do passively. But who knows, maybe I will encourage him and help him out with it if, uh, if that, uh, that fire stays lit in him. Because man, it is, it is so interesting. I know you're gonna enjoy this conversation. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, Nate is a great dude, very knowledgeable, well-spoken thoughtful had a great evening with him stick around for this show uh, i promise it'll be one of your favorites it was certainly one of mine before we go forward with dan though let's uh let's do a few announcements from around arizona our great sporting organizations right off the bat here let's let's let you know the registration is now open for the september becoming an outdoors woman program we've talked about Becoming an Outdoors Woman, often on this show. In fact, we have a whole podcast dedicated to it. So if you want to know a lot about Becoming an Outdoors Woman, our O, go back and listen to that podcast and you'll learn a lot. But in a nutshell, this is Arizona Wildlife Federation's award-winning program that helps women gain skills and confidence in the outdoors. But workshops provide a safe and supportive environment, conductive to learning, making lifelong friends, and having fun in the outdoors. Bow workshops are coordinated by Arizona Wildlife Federation's dedicated and professional bow leaders and are offered three times a year. We have more than 40 classes to choose from, everything from Dutch oven to cooking and handgun basics to burning, fly fishing, and archery. And I will add one more in there because I'll be there this September teaching a small game processing and cooking class. So if that sounds like fun to you, I would love to have you in it. This is September 8th through the 10th at Friendly Pines Camp in Prescott. These things fill up, so register now. Okay, from Southern Arizona Quail Forever, they have a Brittany uh, named you, and he's looking for a home. Let's see. Uh, his owner has had a work change and is looking to rehome him. He's a started hunter that enjoys field work. Price is negotiable, but he must go to a hunting home. He is crate trained, house broken, and it has his papers, and he is intact. Uh, this dog is in Mesa. So if you're looking for a bird dog, this sounds like a great place to get started. Uh, if interested, for more info, contact Dan Ragno, R-A-G-N-O, at 6025, I'm sorry, 602 750 8699. 
And I'll have an email address available for that as well in the show notes. Okay, then from the Arizona Elk Society, they are holding their annual elk clinic. This is going to be at El Zarba, Z-A-R-I-B-A-H Shrine, 552 North 40th Street in Phoenix. And that's Saturday, July 29th, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Doors will open at 8 a.m. So this is their elk clinic. Uh, This is where you go to learn how to be a better elk hunter from experts. Registration is $20 for adults, $10 for kids, lunch is included. Seating is limited and this will sell out. So register now. Look for a link in the show notes to do just that. Finally, uh, Arizona Game and Fish Department. As some of you may know, the Hunter Education Program has been working to expand our instructor base. Over the course of the next few months, our team will be traveling across the state to certify new volunteer instructors. Our team's first stop will be in Tucson on July 29th at the Tucson Regional Office. We will be hosting training in Yuma, Flagstaff, and Phoenix in the following months. If you know of anyone who is interested in becoming a hunter education instructor in Tucson or anywhere else in the state, please send their contact information so they can get in touch with them and make sure they get into one of their courses. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or want to become more involved with the Hunter Education team, teams that are currently teaching courses in your area. I will have a phone number and email in the show notes. You know, this is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for anyone who wants to give back um, and pass on this heritage of hunting that we hold so so close. It's important work. Uh, our volunteer hunter and education instructors are just fantastic people. Um, I know when my little boy and my wife, I took my class way back when I was a kid in Missouri, but when they took theirs here in Arizona, um, they had a great instructor and it was a very valuable experience for them. And <laughs> it was all pretty new for my wife, but for my boy, he said, oh, it's all the same stuff that, that you've taught me, which made me feel good but uh, reaffirmed these important safety lessons and it keeps people safe out there and keeps us uh, educated and doing things the right way, which is good for us in the public eye and, uh, you know, of course, keeps us safe. So don't hesitate to do that. With that, I am glad to be back. Thanks for for hanging in there and I know you're going to enjoy the show. It was so much fun for me. So stick around, listen. I'll, I'll be in touch after the show. Thanks. All right, I'm sitting here with Nate Danforth in my kitchen, and uh, and we're here to talk about falconry. Um, so, Nate, let's start with uh, let's start with an introduction. Who are you? Uh, as you said, my name's Nate uh, Danforth. I'm originally from uh, born and raised in Central Maine. I left when I was about 20 years old. Spent a few years in Silver City, New Mexico, um, and then ended up in Tucson, Arizona, where I've been since 2008, mm-hmm. and I've uh, been practicing falconry there uh, for about last six years coming up on seven years awesome so does does maine have falconry opportunity i mean wood, wood woodcock rough grouse absolutely so woodcock rough grouse gray squirrel yeah. hare uh there's some there's yeah, some rabbit squirrels too uh, marsh hawking on ducks i have a, a ah. friend out there that i've talked to thought i've had to go back a few times i thought that was going to be a, the case leaving the southwest and heading back to maine for family reasons mm-hmm. and uh looking at the opportunities there, talking to falconers there there's a lot of yeah peregrines and stuff on uh Marsh hawking with on, on ducks. So there's a lot of opportunities. It looks very different than yeah. uh, falconry in the Southwest. And if I have my choice, I would 
I'd stay right here or maybe the big sky country. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I'm pretty happy with my falconry. You can see your birds at least. I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's a big part of it. I, and there, there's so much to talk about here. I'm, and I'm sure I'm going to take us off on all kinds of different tangents. But is, is it kind of like, I mean, when you own these birds, you know, Edward, my, my GSP here, he, uh, if it wasn't for modern technology um, and, and transmitters and the ability to track them, I would not enjoy bird hunting with a dog because I would be worried sick all the time. He's going to disappear. Is it the same thing with birds? It, you know, it, it's a it's a great it's, it's a great way to compare it. Um, yes and no. So it depends on the birds you're flying. It depends on the quarry and the habitat that you're flying. Where whether that stress factor goes up. Um, the falconry I'm practicing right now without GPS uh, on my bird and my dogs, I'd be constantly stressed, and it just would not be fun. Um, my my wife though she flies um, she flies a Harris Hawk very mm-hmm. close range for the most part and she just uses good old fashioned bells to locate her bird yeah. and does not use telemetry or GPS okay. whatsoever. So it's kind of like dog breeds. The different different species have different characters. Abs- absolutely, and and even within that, you might have um, you know there's there's same breeds that might hunt closer or other depending on lines and things like that. Right. So you, you can definitely have a variance in there. Um, but I, I would say for the most part, your falconry is going to be a lot less uh, stressful if you have some modern sure. conveniences. I'm yeah. sure back in the day, people lost birds a lot more. Right. Okay. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves already. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. How, do, how does one become a falconer? How, how do you get into that? Uh, so falconry has been uh, federally regulated since I believe it was 1972. Um, until the early 2000s, it was completely a federal uh, regulatory process to become a falconer. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early 2000s, it got the feds decided to have the states do most of the managing. But since the birds we work with all fall under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, they still there's still this umbrella of federal oversight. So if states can adopt their own regulations and their own ways to govern falconry, but it can't be any more lenient than mm-hmm. what the federal regulations are. Um, so all of our paperwork has to be sent into uh, federal offices, but it's, it's governed at the state level. Yeah. Um, to become a falconer in federal regu- regulation states, um, you can start as early as 12. Some mm-hmm. states don't allow until 14. Here in Arizona, and kind of going forward, I'll mostly talk about Arizona since that's what I'm most familiar sure. with. Uh, but here in Arizona, you can start as early as 12. And there's three main hurdles. There's no chronological steps to these hurdles. Um, they can kind of be... Um, you can kind of jump these hurdles um, as they come, depending, you know, depending on your situation. But uh, the big three are: you have to pass a hundred-question written exam, uh, and this exam is going to quiz you on raptor identification, um, flight styles, husbandry, so the way we care for the birds, um, equipment choices that are appropriate for each bird, uh, regula- regulation, health questions. It's mm-hmm. it's very broad. Uh, it's not intended to. You don't pass it like, oh, I'm an expert on falconry, but it, to make sure you've done your homework and uh, done some studying. Uh, it's a 100-question exam. You have to pass with an 80%. Um, and it's it's surprisingly tough. I'm a, I've always been a good tester, and yeah. I really had to, to study for this. I'm a poor um, tester. Yeah, if you're a poor tester, I, I know a lot of falconers who've taken had yeah. to, to take the test a couple times. I can't imagine getting into falconry, though. Well, my personality... I don't half ask anything I do. I mean, I go into hard and heavy. And, if you're and that kind of goal of being an expert, if you're that kind of personality, I mean, honestly, I think at the end of the day, it's the only thing that is required for success in Valkyrie yeah. is just, you don't even have to be smart. You just have to be willing to work hard and, right. and, uh, and, and just put the work in. And, uh, so yeah, if you, you know, 
the thing with Valkyrie, like you mentioned, is a lot of tangents to go on. Is there's there's so much to know, uh-huh. and so I always recommend folks uh, narrow their focus when they're studying for that exam because um, we've got a four thousand plus year old sport, and you can overstudy for this exam, right? And okay. just know the wrong things. Right, um, right. So there's some study guides out there that really help you with this. Anybody listening who thinks they want to pursue this, I always recommend the California Hawking Club study guide, right? Um, the Apprentice study guide, and that'll line you up. That'll set you up uh, and completely prepare you to, to pass your exam. Um, you need to know that and then your individual state regs. So how does I, – I, I told you that my little boy is really excited about potential falconry ever since he read my, right, my Side of the Mountain, which I would imagine is probably where a lot of falconers come from or at least get their – Absolutely. It's one of the most taste, cliche things, right? but it's, it's a truth um, for sure. But it's funny how you can have a cliche in such a small niche. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so he's really excited about it. Um, and I told you that we we had found uh, the other day uh, Chevron Canyon Lake a nesting pair of uh, peregrines. And we got to see the chicks. And, and in this particular situation, you could have, without much trouble, walked down toward the ledge that those those chicks were on and picked them up. Um, it was totally doable. But um, obviously, we didn't. We didn't even disturb them yes, much. Yes. Um, but uh, uh, but you know, he got that in his head, and I was I was like, "Can you buy a license? Can we buy a license online?" Like, Buddy, you're not <laughs> you're not bringing a baby parrot home today. But um, you mentioned that in Arizona, you can be 12 years old and get into this. How, how do they pass the test? So um, my best friend's uh, first apprentice was uh, she was actually 13 when she became licensed, but she took the exam at 12 and uh, very smart self-starting mm-hmm. young 12-year-old lady. And, um, you know, some 12-year-olds obviously aren't going to be cut out for this. And this is going to be something where I think most prospective sponsors, so this is the what we call the person who's going to be um, uh, taking, you know, super kind of a supervisory um, status in your falconry and guiding you through the process. So that's one of those other three that we haven't got to yet. But, um, you know, they're going to have to evaluate whether this is a, a person – that has the uh, maturity to, right. to do this sport. Sure. You know? and so not all 12-year-olds could do that, okay. you know, all for right. sure. I don't know if I could have at 12. Right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I mean, just not all 12-year-olds are going to be cut out for it. Although some of the most, some of the best Falconers I know of, um, some of my mentors, some of the people I really look up to um, were young Falconers, you know, 13, right. 14 years old when they started. So Interesting. Um, so... You know, my, my job here in this conversation is to kind of lead us down a path, um, and I've got countless questions, but you have the expertise. I have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about, so so I'm going to ask you to help kind of okay. guide us so, in the correct directions as well. So you want me to go back but, to those three those three steps sure. that we talked about? Yeah. Okay, so perfect. So we've, we passed the exam, right? With 80, 80%, you need to start that out. You know, some states actually require you get one of the other steps first, but most mm-hmm. states... Somebody who's going to take you on. So the next step is is finding a sponsor, and um, you know, outside of AA circles, that seems like a, a weird sure. word. But uh, uh, sponsor is just a falconer who's been practicing for at least four years and is going to um, take you under their wing. We always like to make that little pun there. But uh, and they're they're guiding your falconry. They're going to be helping you through this process. So there's a lot to read, but it's very much a hands on process. And a sponsor is that that uh, mentor, mm-hmm. you know, basically a, a, an on paper mentor. Yeah. That's guiding your 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 falconry apprenticeship, um, and so you have to find somebody who's willing to. They 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 write a letter to Arizona Game and Fish that says, "Here's my credentials, and I'm taking Michael Cravens on to be um, you know my apprentice." Um, so that's that's step two, and then step three is you have to acquire your equipment and build uh, where your bird is going to be housed. Mm-hmm. So it's called a muse, M E W S, and there's certain guidelines on size, shape, you know. Um, 
how safe it is and the materials that are used to build that. Um, you, you acquire that and you acquire some other equipment and that gets inspected um, often by a game warden here in Arizona. Uh, they'll come out to your house and, and they have a little, little checklist and they're just going to check off the boxes, make sure your, your um, facility and where you're housing your bird um, meets, meets those specifications. And uh, if you do, once you have those three steps, you've got your letter from your sponsor, you have your past exam, and uh, you have your past inspection for your facilities. You then go down to Game and Fish with those, and you will walk out with your apprentice falconry license. Um, so those apprentice being an apprentice falconer is a two-year process. Mm -hmm. So you're an apprentice for at least two years. Um, and during that time, you have to maintain that relationship with the sponsor. And uh, But during that time, it's actually, you get to be a practicing falconer. You're just doing it with supervision. You're doing it with guidance. And there's some limitations. So you're limited on uh, the types of birds you can fly. And um, you can only have one bird at a time as, a, as an apprentice falconer. Um, lost my train of thought there, sorry. Um, so, you know, there's some limitations on that, but you're, you're, it's a hands-on process. When I first learned about falconry, when first I thought I wanted to go down this path, I thought being an apprentice was two years of cleaning some dude's bird's poop up for two <laughs> years and being his gopher. Yeah. Um, and then maybe after two years, he'd sign off and be like, okay, you can be a falconer. Like yeah. that's what I thought apprenticeship looked like. And I think a lot of people kind of have that idea of apprenticeship with falconry, but it's a, it's a hands-on, you know, active apprenticeship that you're actually uh, being a practicing falconer during that time. Interesting. I had no idea it was that complicated honestly <laughs> I, I i because i guess i didn't know what to think i thought maybe you just went down there you got your falconry license and you figured out how to get a bird um no that's great I, i'm glad to see that oversight and is it is it pretty much that way with the federal oversight across the nation absolutely so the things that i lined out are are across the board okay. federal regulations okay. some of the things that are different for instance arizona is very lenient on what kind of bird an apprentice can fly. Mm -hmm. Most of the country, an apprentice is, has the option of a, of a red-tailed hawk or a, um, an American kestrel. Uh, here in Arizona, you can have almost anything that Arizona has to offer that's on the take list. Um, and uh, you know that's very different yeah, from a lot I of I want to get states. into that too. So, yeah, shortly. absolutely. Yeah. But all right. So to summarize, you decide you want to be... You, you, first, you go off and you read my side of the map. Yeah, that's right. Um, then you're like, holy hell, that is cool. Yeah. Um, then you decide you want to be a falconer. Then you, the first step, you can go just take your test. Yes, Study absolutely. up, take your test. Yeah, go down to your local Arizona Game and Fish Department. Um, you can give them a call, say, I'd like to schedule the exam, and they're going to put you in a room and, and, uh, and okay. yeah, take the test there. Um, find yourself an apprentice. Or a sponsor. A sponsor, yes. I'm yep. sorry. Um, and the, that can be a complicated thing. On it, so back up a I'm little sure bit it on is. that. It's not a huge, um, huge world. A big help on that actually is the Arizona Falconers Association, okay. which is a local club that that helps with that. But that's yeah, that's what I tell any prospective hunter. Um, the best way to get into this is get into the conservation community because these are giving people number Absolutely. one. Um, get involved with an organ. Pick your pick your organization if you like elk the best. Join the elk society if you yes. like antelope. Join the Antelope Foundation. If you want to drink a bunch of beer and, and act a fool sometimes, join us back on Janitors and Anglers. <laughs> and I, I say that as the vice chair of back on Janitors and Anglers and very fondly. Um, but still, they do great conservation work. And you uh, you get in, you, you go on a couple of volunteer projects, and you're going to make best friends. And once you're in, you're in, and they're going to help you any way you need to be helped. I would assume it's probably the same with Falconry. Uh, absolutely. You know, Falconry is one of those things. It, it, the nature of becoming a Falconer um, – requires that sort of volunteerism from other falconers. The, the sport would die without folks being willing to pass it on. And yeah. so, because uh, you can't get into this on your own. Yeah, we I'm all gonna, I'm gonna want to talk about that yeah. too. There's so, so much, man. Um, all right, get your equipment, get all set up, uh, get your sponsor, uh, get your uh, apprentice license. 
uh, spend two years working with your sponsor, they eventually will sign off on you when they decide you're ready. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, but during that, that's th- a minimum of two years. Yes. Though. Yeah. Minimum of two years. Um, and they're looking that you've, and you've I, I'm sorry if I missed this at that time. Can you have a bird? Yeah, absolutely. So as soon as you get that apprentice license, you know, usually if you're uh, between the months of October and uh-huh. January or so, you're probably going to go out trapping for that first bird. Okay. And, All right. Well, I guess that brings uh, me to my next curiosity point is how do folks get birds? And yeah, the the particularities, adults versus babies, eggs, whatever. Absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, Very, very common question. So yeah, so you've got that apprentice license in hand. You're stoked. You're you're ready to go. the next step is to, is to get your first bird. And for the vast majority of falconers in the United States, and especially in Arizona, it's, it's going to be a wild taken bird. And I always like to take a pause there on that because that can get some people to bristle a little bit. Like, wait a minute, we're taking birds out of the wild. Oh, well, sure. Um, and so... But we can look at it like a managed resource. And exactly, and exactly. And anybody who understands hunting and managed resource understands this. For folks who aren't in that kind of world, it can be a kind of a sure. difficult thing to get them to get understand. It. But there's absolutely, just like any other managed resource, um, those populations for each bird One are of being those tracked. chicks could get kicked out of the nest. Just yeah, well, absolutely. And so you know, one of the things that we call attention to folks is that 70 to 90% of birds in their first year don't make it out of their first year, right? So it's a sure. super high mortality rate. Yeah. The birds that a, a first an apprentice is going to take is that first year bird. In okay. Valkyrie terms, we call it a passage bird. So it's a bird that is under a year old. The reason why we call it a passage bird is whether it migrates or not, it's in reference to the migratory passage that that bird might take. So it hasn't made its first migratory passage. It's under a year old. And that's the age that a um, an apprentice can take. So it can't be a baby. It has to be a bird that's fully fledged. It's left the nest. It's a term I borrow from a falconer friend, a fully actualized hawk. It okay. knows it's a hawk. Yeah. Um, it's been out there at least attempting and uh, probably some successes, some failures at hunting. Um, and most falconers are trapping about October, November so or so. Why not a baby though? Because in my mind's eye, that's what I was thinking. I'm going to climb up a cliff. And yeah. Egg yeah. Right. Like Sam Gribley style yeah. from uh, my side of the mountain. So, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. as an apprentice. Sorry. I was thinking somewhat completely different. I was thinking uh, Chris Farley. Oh gosh. When he's climbing that mountain and the <laughs> eagles. I don't know. I don't even know if I remember it correctly, but definitely not my side of the mountain. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it, it's a great question. And falconers do uh, often work with babies, but for apprentice okay. falconers, regulatory wise, we're, apprentice falconers are only allowed to take uh, passage birds, so okay. birds that are have fully fledged. And there's good reason for that. They don't line out the reasons in the regs, but uh, for me, one of the biggest, uh, most uh, practical reasons is that Falkyrie is super consuming. You might think you want to do this and that it's all, you know, you're all in, but then, you know, when your family and friends stage an intervention because you're nowhere to be seen six months out of the year right. and they decide that maybe you should consider a different hobby. Um, with a passage bird, a bird that has been trapped uh, at that age frame. So it's, it's left the nest, it's a fully actualized bird. It knows it's a bird. It doesn't have any complicated imprinting relationship with a, with a falconer. It can be released. Okay, and so uh, you decide falconry is not for you. That bird can can be released. Okay. So that's that's I, I one see the practi- value there. Yeah, yeah. So that's one practical reason. The other thing is that raising an imprint, so a bird that's actually taken from the nest as a as a baby, as a nestling, mm-hmm. comes with a whole nother host of training obstacles um, that an apprentice falconer probably isn't yeah. quite equipped to to navigate yet. Yeah. It's it's just a whole the process of raising an, an imprint bird and teaching it to become a, a competent hunter. Is, is a huge task. And if you're just trying to learn how to, you're a baby falconer, right? Okay. If you're just trying to learn um, that process, 
you, you want to start off with some good success. So uh, the value in a passage bird, a bird that is is under a year old but isn't a baby, is it already has some uh, wisdom, you know, some some street smarts. Yeah. You know, it understands what th- threats are in the wild. It understands what predators are. It understands uh, it's it's had some successes, it's had some failures, and it's learned from that. And so you as a falconer, an apprentice falconer coming mm-hmm. in, the only thing you have to figure out with that bird is trust. Yep. To get that bird to to be accepting of your your presence and to uh, be okay being around you, to accept you in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to teach it to hunt. You don't have to teach it how to right. navigate the right perches okay. to take when hunting, all those sorts of different things. And so an apprentice falconer... Um, it'd be really tough to start with a, with an, an okay. imprint bird. So, I, you know, I've moved on and I've raised young birds, um, you know, imprint, what we call an imprint or an so IS. Is, is there value? I mean, I've never had a falcon. Um, I've had a dog. Yeah. And I can have a really close personal relationship with that dog. Is that possible with a falcon or are they just hunting, eating machines? So it's somewhere, there's a spectrum, right? And, and I guess if that, if you can have that, is that are you better creating that from a chick? Great question. So there's there's definitely a spectrum. I think a lot of falconers tend to want to tell prospective falconers that these are just cold-hearted machines, that you're just like an accessory and they don't care about you. Mm-hmm. And some birds, that's certainly the case. But there's there is the relationship is very much um, a practical one. They, okay. If you're a good hunter, if you're a good falconer, the bird learns to recognize your value. And there's an appreciation there, yeah. you know. Um, but if you stop being valuable for the most part, they're going to be like, whatever, and they're going to move on, okay. right? Got so it definitely is, there's, but it's not just a simple, cold relationship. There, there's, it's there's not a, like a parrot. No, but there's a partnership there. Okay. And there's, there's, a, there's a true partnership and a true understanding. The value in, in a, a raising a young raising an IS, raising an imprinted bird. So you, you take a baby chick and you do the whole process, right? You're, you're going to take the role of parent. That's generally reserved for birds that can be a little tougher to handle when they're older. Okay. So everybody thinks like a wild bird, you'd want it to raise it as a baby. But for the most part, a lot of our birds are will, what we call man down very quickly. So manning is a falconry term, just old, outdated term, but it just means getting used to humans. Yeah. Um, some of the birds don't do that as easily. They're they're much higher strung. They're more nervous tempered, mm-hmm. uh, and fear is your biggest issue to to overcome with them. So something like your your occipiters, Cooper's hawks, um, uh, goshawks, sharp shin hawks, um, and even some of your falcons, where it, they're kind of a high strung bird, where they're just always fear is just such a big motivator for them. And when you raise one as an imprint, as an ias, you mm-hmm. know, a little, little baby bird that you pulled from a nest. Um, you overcome that fear. That fear is gone now. Uh, but with the, going back to the exhibitors, the goshawks, the Cooper's hawks, things like that. Now your your other hurdle can be aggression. So yeah. um, if because they no longer fear you, if you do something to offend them, they might react aggressively. And so this is why we don't stick apprentices with, right. with these birds. Um, but uh, the the even longtime falconers will have long conversations and debates on the merits of imprint. Mm-hmm. imprinted babies versus passage take. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of context. You know, this is something I tell my apprentices. Uh, whenever anybody's telling you something about falconry, you have to keep in mind the context. Um, in colder climates, uh, you don't have to weight manage your birds as much. You can feed them a little bit more because they're, they're, it's just cold and they're burning calories. And, and um, the bird's so concerned about catching their next meal so they don't freeze to death yeah. um, that fear isn't much as much of an issue. So you know, something like a goshawk... Um, 
a lot of northern falconers, people live in northern country, you know, parts of the country, will fly passage goshawks. Um, but I would never try to fly a passage goshawk here in Arizona. I'd, ha- I'd have to forgive me it, it, if know. I miss on passage. Pa- so passage is again what we talked about with uh, that's a bird that is under a year old got it, that has got made it. that okay. first migratory passage. Right, so thank you. Um, basically a subadult. Okay, the, you know best way to think yeah. of it. Huh. That's unfortunate because if I ever decided to go down this road, goshawks always been my favorite. Oh well, you raptor. should totally. You should at, at some point you should fly a goshawk. That's yeah. that's what I flew last season. That's uh, what we'll be flying this season. And such magnificent. They're birds. amazing, but. Yeah. Uh, in Arizona, I, I think it's a really tall task to uh, raise a, to to do a, a passage, a sub adult bird. It's I found, I found a nesting bird. female during turkey season this year. I only know she was nesting because she came down and yelled at me. Awesome. Close. Yeah. So I assumed she was. They get very nesting. defensive during that time of year. Yeah, I was in the yeah. Appalachians once and had one dive on my head because because I had a nest nearby. Um, God, magnificent birds. All right. Um, you, well, when I was a kid, my very first job was in a pet store. Okay. I mean, I've been all about animals. My dad never strayed from that path, but um, we raised macaws. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, they were so smart. And when you raise them from a baby, it's really hard to sell them. You know, fortunately, they cost so much. Most people that bought them were, you know, infested. But, uh, but yeah, you you definitely got that. There was something something you got from raising one from an egg um, that, that you didn't get from an adult that just came into the store. Absolutely, know? absolutely. Well, you know, and, and parrots are a good contrast. It's it's funny we, we have a lot in common. My my parents um, uh, bred exotic birds, and mm-hmm. uh, some of my first chores as a kid were actually cleaning out bird cages and helping hand feed the birds and do all that sort of stuff. So, well, that that um, should definitely be part of the the the. Road to falconry, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, there's almost always an exotics, uh, herpers, a lot of falconers are previous herpers yeah. and that sort of thing. But uh, so there's definitely some crossover there for sure. Uh, you know, but those birds are very much, there's a strong social component mm-hmm. to those birds. And those birds live in, in social groups and social flocks and they, they preen each other and they engage in all these sort of social relationships that raptors just don't have. Yeah. Um, you know, the most social I mean, raptor we have pretty is, much just fixated predators, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the birds that do have, so we have Harris's hawks here in mm-hmm. Arizona and, uh, you know, they occur in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, south of New Mexico and Central mm-hmm. America. Super amazing birds, very intelligent and, and social as well. But yep. their social structure is so much different than even like a parrot. Um, they're, it's just a hunting relationship. It's a hunting partnership. They right. hang around because they make hunting and acquiring food easy for each other. But they don't hang out and preen each other after. Afterwards, yeah. they, they, do they? they do have kind of a hierarchical feeding structure okay. when they when something is caught. But if, uh, if a little male, a little beta, like some yeah. males are... Low on the totem pole in the Harrisock family. Uh, if that was to catch like a little squirrel on its own, it was. It's not. It's going to go try to hide that and eat it on its yeah. own. Right? Are, there, are there sexually dimorphic size differences? They are. So um, every raptor that I know of, I always like to qualify that because I'm sure there's some exceptions, but um, are, are dimorphic by size. Um, oh. Females are larger, you know, from a factor of a third sometimes. Interesting. Some of the species even bigger than that, but. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, 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 I'm assuming, I, I think the, the natural progression here should probably be going to species. Okay. Um, are, I guess, are there species that are off limits in Arizona? Absolutely. So there's, okay. there's federally off limits species. Um, so wildlife law, I mean, you're familiar with this is very much, um, it's, it's opposite of like kind of our constitutional law, which is like uh-huh. ne- negative rights. Here's what you can't do, right? Uh, where wildlife law is, here's what you can do. Okay. So falconry is very much the same way. So rather than like all stuff's allowed except for this, it's more of here is what is allowed. Um, in Arizona, for Arizona species, 
what is available for take for a fully licensed falconer. So we're talking about general level or master level up. Um, you have everything from great horned owl, um, western screech owl, American oh, kestrel. Never considered owls. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Western screech owl, um, American castrol, red tail hawk. Uh, the gray hawk was recently put on on take. It's a draw. Oh, it's a, a lottery. Cool so you get yeah. we get one a year. A draw. It's a draw no for kidding. one bird. Um, only only one in the country. Just the adventure of going and getting yeah, it. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So the gray hawk. Um, Red tail, uh, ferruginous hawk. Um, Another one, of my favorite available. beauty. Yeah, is it? Sure. Yeah, they're, well, they're impressive. I mean, they're just the, yeah. the biggest one, right? right. They're so they're so impressive. The it took me a while to see one too, living out east. So. Yeah, yeah. Wilcox is a good spot if you really want to go see a yeah, bunch. That's yeah, where I got my first yeah, one. Actually. Perfect. Um, uh, so those guys, Harris's hawks, um, peregrine falcons, uh, prairie falcons, and merlins. Mm -hmm. What about elf owls? Uh, elf owls are not on the take list. Um, yeah, you could go hunt some scorpions and grasshoppers with them. They are they are super cute. They are. Um, I, yeah. I've, I go out photographing those guys, but they are they are not on the take list. Okay. Uh, not in Arizona. I don't think. Well, still though, state, that's a but. variety of species. Um, all right, and I'm guessing can can you maybe? All right, I know Harris hawks are popular because they have some level of cooperation already mm -hmm. naturally. Yeah, and I assume that that rolls over into falconry as well? A hundred percent. They're just perfectly suited for falconry because of that. They understand, because falconry is a cooperative relationship. You're, sure. A lot of people look at it, I've had people accused it of being parasitic, right? The bird goes and does its thing, we're just stealing from them. It's not the case at all. If good falconry is cooperation. Mm -hmm. You're setting up easier, um, what we call a slip, so easier opportunities for these birds to, to be able to uh, chase game, um, and the birds figure that out. You know, they can't chase, it can't catch a rabbit if the rabbit's in the brush, right? And, right? and the first time you take a flushing stick and poke a bush, and the rabbit fly, you know, rushes out, the hawk catches it. It looks at you and is like, "I'm gonna follow this this dude, right? I'm gonna follow this person," and because they make they make this easier. So it's very much a cooperative relationship. Um, now, some birds, it takes a little longer to show that because they're just not used to somebody helping them, right? right. Uh, but Harris's hawks, absolutely. It, they, it's a normal process. They, they understand it. it. Yeah. They get it so quick. And they're, they're among some of the fastest um, to train birds okay. um, out there. And versatile, too. So you can take a wide variety of game okay. with a Harris hawk. Uh -huh. So I would imagine a red-tailed hawk only, and I only say this because they are so successful over such a broad range of habitats. I, I'm assuming that they're probably a, a a bird that is conducive to this as well. Absolutely. So red tail hawks are probably the, the if you lined up a hundred falconers, ninety nine of them, it was probably their first bird yeah. to fly. It's, it, like I said earlier, in, in most states, uh, you're only allowed to start with a red tail or a, or a kestrel right. in your apprentice season, your two apprentice seasons, and and you know red tails are very capable hawk. Mm -hmm. um, you know most falconers. On average, you're chasing rabbits, and the red-tailed hawk's a, a great fit for that. If you're in squirrel country, they're they're awesome. Yeah, they're they're arguably one of the best for squirrel hawking. I would think uh, a goshawk. So, oh yeah, so goshawks are really good, um, and there are falconers who utilize them. Uh, there's a risk for losing toes, and if you put a lot of work into getting a goshawk, you don't want to lose toes uh, lose with a squirrel catch. But oh uh, yeah, because squirrels, yeah, they can they jump the toe off. Bite. Yeah, for sure. and so. Um, but you're right, especially North American goshawks, they are squirrel specialists. Anybody yeah. who watches nests or does any nest surveys realizes how much they sure. prey on squirrels. Um, but uh, so there are definitely people who use that, but uh, red tails, big, thick, chunky toes, um, mm -hmm. and they, they're they're very good at it. I have a friend in Tennessee who's kind of the, the squirrel hawking guru, and he, he loves yeah. his red tails. But. Somebody contacted me, it's been a year or two back, but they wanted to basically do all North American squirrels with their 
with their hawk. Was his name Jeff Fincher? Might have been. I have to look on okay. Instagram. See what okay. his name it is. Sounds like something Jeff Fincher. I told him I'd like help that. him though, yeah. because it sounded neat as could be. To that me. would be yes. That sounds very much Jeff Fincher yeah. style. All so. right. Um, all right. So you mentioned kestrels. Mm-hmm. What in the world do you hunt with a kestrel? <laughs> uh, so you know, most falconers would would laugh and immediately give the obvious. You know, grasshoppers, right? Yeah. But. Uh, but honestly, there's some falconers out there doing some really incredible things with kestrels. They are amazing little predators. Mm-hmm. And uh, while dragonflies and, and grasshoppers are probably lots of fun, uh, they are absolutely capable of taking uh, you know, English house sparrows and mm-hmm. uh, starlings. And uh, you know, there's ways you have to, this is again, talk about cooperative hunting. Generally, the falconer is going to skew odds in this scenario and just help set up um, a flight that's going to going to favor the kestrel in, in this pursuit. But uh, uh, what's awesome about having a kestrel and going after uh, starlings and uh, sparrows is they're invasive species that are available mm-hmm. to uh, to hunt year round in every state yeah. in the in the country, uh, and they're accessible to a new breed of, of really a hunter who is ha- losing habitat all the time and might have to be looking at urban hunting. Yeah. And so they're a really awesome choice for that. Um, there's a, there's a falconer, um, out of Louisiana named Matthew Mullenix who wrote a book about, you know, American, fal- American kestrels in falconry. And it's all about that. And a big part of what he talks about is that this is, should be an option that a lot of falconers who are losing access to land, it's not an issue we really have in Arizona, but right. you know, other falconers or other people in the country might have to look at. It. It's like, what, what can I hunt? I don't have wild natural areas. A kestrel in kind of these suburban spots on on English house sparrows and, and starlings is yeah. a real option. Um, but uh, yeah, it can be a task to take that little bird, something that weighs ninety to one hundred and twenty grams, and uh, yeah. catch more than grass. Yeah, you know, and I guess you're, you, you know, for instance, for me and my kids, our yeah. rule is we don't kill things we don't eat. Now. I don't apply that rule to everyone. Um, you know, if, if you want to go shoot a coyote and keep the pelt, absolutely, you go do that. It's just how we do it. Absolutely. Um, and we don't apply that to everyone. But uh, with with falconry, you're still not wasting that out because you're feeding it to your bird, uh, right? 100%. Yeah, everything you're catching is going to be consumed by by okay. somebody, you know. Um, although, uh, go back to my friend Matt Mullenix there. He has started a challenge of uh, uh, cooking and eating starlings. So apparently he says it's, it's good awesome. eating. Why so not, man? Yeah, yeah nice dark meat. meat. I could probably my problem would be the places they live and the yeah. things they eat. <laughs> he catches a lot yeah, of flax from the falconry community. But don't misunderstand me. I, I've eaten lots of pigeons, mm-hmm. but I eat country pigeons. Yes, yeah. I don't eat city pigeons. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? I can't say that because I'm sure those pigeons I'm eating from the country <laughs> eat plenty of asphalt too. So, yeah. um, well, that's interesting. Um, so. You know, I, I talked, I asked about the species that I thought would be unique, but of all of those, I mean, like even thinking like great horned owls, phrygianus hawks, um, uh, any number of the other species, are, are any of the others, do, what are the unique characters that make them good for one thing or bad for another? So the, the list of what's available isn't necessarily the list of what's good to uh, go catch game with, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a very tall, it's a very tall order to catch game regularly with with any of the owls you know yeah how, um, how do they do hunting during the day so most you so the, the probably the most successful owl falconer i know of um 
he actually hunted during the day. It was an imprint bird, though, and that's that's part of the value of that imprinting is you mm-hmm. kind of get to set up the schedule and the routine. A little and, more and, manipulation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but a lot of the, you know a lot of the others who are doing it, dusk and dawn. Uh, great horned sure. owls are actually a very mu- commonly a crepuscular hunter. Mm-hmm. They're not strictly you know dead of the right. night nocturnal, and so you know they might be a good option for somebody who is going to be getting home late from work and uh, might only have those twilight hours as an option. But really, the biggest hurdle I think in hunting owls is the way they hunt. Owls are not, they have great vision, of course, mm-hmm. big, you know, big eyes, but that's not really predominantly how they're locating and, and chasing their prey. It's not through eyesight, it's actually through their hearing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're out with a red tail chasing squirrels. Your job is to make as much ruckus as possible and get squirrels moving. Um, with an owl, when you're hunting with an owl, you're just muddying the airwaves. And it's hard to show that owl that you're yeah. any, that you're worth hanging around with, that you're worth <laughs> cooperating with because you're just making their job harder. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a real tall task. And you know, we try to, we try to minimize gatekeeping. Um, but if somebody comes to this sport and is like, I've always wanted to be a falcon, I want to fly an owl. Like that's a little bit of a red flag for us. You know, know, a lot of times, because if you're serious about this as a hunting sport, an owl is probably not going to be your first choice. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as, as a, if they watch too much Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I know some legitimate falconers who want to push themselves and, and, uh, stretch what they're capable of. And and snowy owls seem real diurnal. They don't even have the cupped face. Exactly. Unfortunately, they're not on the take. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what could be done with those, but, um, you know, and there's, there's some other things too. Owls are just aliens, man. They're, I mean, from a, so weird. from a biological yeah. standpoint, they're so different than the other birds of prey. We talk about birds of prey as this big lump of, you know, this category, and the birds couldn't be any different from each other. You yeah. know, a, an owl is so different from a, from a falcon. Falcons are genetically closer to parrots, talking about parrots, than mm-hmm. than they are to hawks. Even so, there's oh, I didn't just know that. The, yeah, we put them in this group because oh, they kill things. They've got curved talons and curved beaks, and yeah. you know, so we're gonna put them in this group. But they're, That's they're interesting. very kind of like a diverse. mole and a lion. Yes, you know, yeah. people think a mole yeah. is more closely related yeah. to a mouse. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Or it couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, so that's uh, interesting. I had no idea. And so, you know, when we're talking about training and working with these birds, you know, owls are, they're little aliens. They, they, they operate differently. They think differently. And it can be a, a real hurdle to successfully hunt with one. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly if you're starting the sport, it's not a good, it's not a good choice. You want something that's going to set you up for success. Um, and, and, um, success begets success, right? So get sure. something that you can, you can do yeah. well with. Yeah. And then once you've done that, then go see what okay. you can do with these other species. I think there's a lot, we have a 4,000 year old sport, but I actually think there's still many, many books to be written on what can be done. Yeah. And, um, uh, but you gotta, you gotta have some wins first. Sure. <laughs> so what about peregrines? I mean, they're like the Kings of speed. You know? Icons, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely an iconic, uh, bird of prey. I feel like they'd be high strung. Surprisingly, not yeah. uh, among the falcons. So prairie falcons are, are notorious for being. Kind I of see a, a lot of gyre birds. falcons. Yeah. So jeer, 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 gur. I've heard different pronunciations. Oh, so some of them give me a hard time yeah. for that. But uh, uh, yeah, those you know, largest falcon. Those are those are an icon as well. Different flight style than a peregrine. Yeah. Uh, in Arizona, the peregrines are, are accessible. They're also on a draw. So there's five really? permits a year for for falconers, um, and. Uh, those, uh, you know, falconers have, uh, falconers have such a history so with peregrines. How, you know? I mean, uh, how many falconers are in the state that if there's five tags available, so how hard is that draw? Last count, I think we're about 100 plus or minus um, mm-hmm. some uh, falconers okay. in, in, in Arizona. But so I, I would imagine established falconers already have their birds, right? Or, uh, yes and no. Uh, I've put in for, for peregrine take and didn't, didn't get it. You know, uh, Do you get points? 
No, no okay. points on on vertebrae take. No, um, but uh, this is so fascinating to me, man. It's just such a, a it's like a world that's right under my nose, but it's so alien to me. Yeah, and there's so much to talk about. So yeah. I, don't, I don't, I've got all the time in the world tonight, but I don't, you know, but we can go down. We're fine. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so peregrines. I mean, there's there's such a storied history with peregrines and falconry. I mean, they're probably one of the earliest birds used mm-hmm. in falconry. Do you ever um, use those little helmets? <laughs> yeah. So uh, falcons are more commonly we call them hoods. Yeah. Uh, more commonly utilize the hoods, uh, and a hoods it's a sensory depth deprivation tool. Okay. It's uh, it just helps your bird kind of chill out, you okay, know, between it. doing what you're doing, right? Sure. If you're traveling to the field, you don't get your bird excited and using up calories and energy. Mm-hmm. So we just flip a hood on. It, it kind of you know, turns off their visual. Most of their sensory processing is through what they're seeing. Should try that with it's, Edward. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if the dog would handle start it. Start putting a hood over. Yeah, you're like the dogs that Elizabethan collar. I think it might have the same effect there. But uh, uh, yeah, so peregrines are commonly a hooded bird. Uh, but you know, the peregrine was a was a bird that was at you know, a very, you know, an endangered species for a mm-hmm. while. And falconry um, is very much tied to its comeback. Um, you know, falconers were some of the first people who noticed the reduction in numbers in falconry mm-hmm. populations or in, in peregrine populations. And um, there was that back in the DDT days. Uh huh. Okay. Yep, absolutely. And uh, falconers uh, had a lot to do with the efforts to bring them back. So the breeding programs, you know, it was breeding programs, captive breeding programs that reestablished them. And uh, the only people who knew how to take care of these birds and the husbandry and the way to take, you know, were falconers. And so it was, it was falconers who, even falconers that donated their own personal birds to these breeding programs, potentially never knowing if they'd ever be able to fly another peregrine in their lives, um, donating these birds to these breeding programs to reestablish them. Mm-hmm. And what's awesome is some of those falconers did live long enough to see take reestablished. Oh wow! You know, wild populations recover, take That's reestablished, wonderful. and then again be able to trap a wild peregrine yeah. and fly that. You know, no, so. it's just like it was it was the sporting community that brought back big game populations from under. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. So yes, yeah, the same story told. You know, in in other conservation efforts for sure. Interesting, man. So much. Um, what what is the the natural progression of the next step? I am assuming we should probably talk about training. Um, I guess there would be two avenues there. I know we don't have to go into depth on, on either of them, I guess, but you have a bird that you raised from. Well, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's pretend we're apprentice and go for, we'll go with that. Well, first off, if, if you wanted, okay, are people breeding them in captivity? So yes. Short, okay. Yeah. Short answer. Yes. So there is captive red birds available Okay, for some species. All right. Um, that seems like it would be a great way forward if you had that available to you. Potentially. Okay. So uh, like we talked about- you have to teach a bird how to hunt. Exactly. Okay. So there's certain value. Depending on the species you're wanting to fly, there's, uh, you know, if I'm going to fly a Harris's hawk in Arizona, there's no good argument for me to want, prefer a captive bred bird over a wild taken bird. Okay. Uh, I imagine a mama hawk can teach a baby or a mom and dad absolutely. To, to hunt better than Absol- we can. Absolutely. And there's other, especially with a Harris's hawk, there's other components that go into that too. So socialization. So being able to work well with others. Right. Um, one of the beautiful things about Harris hawking is that if you decide you want to be a falconer, you uh-huh. can go out with us and I was fly gonna a ask bird that together. Next. Can, you, can you fly two Harris hawks absolutely, at the same time? Absolutely. But um, with captive bred birds, that can be tough to establish uh, okay. good socialization, good manners, and you can struggle with some of I that. See. And so there's some, there's a lot of value in a wild taken bird so w- when that's available. What about hunting a Harris hawk and keeping a Harris hawk up here in this country outside of the Sonoran Desert? So Harris hawks don't, Harris's don't do as well in colder weather. Okay. Um, if, if the temperatures are going to be below 20, you want to take some measures to protect them. Uh-huh. Um, but they can handle some pretty cold temps. So they do okay um, indoors? Ab- like to, during the winter months? Yeah. So you could, you could do a few different ways. You know, if you just 
extra insulation on their muse, yep. you know, maybe have doors that could close in the inclement weather. Um, you know, there's, there's people who are flying Harris Hawks all across the country. And so they're definitely, there's, there's right. things you could do to, yeah. to just to weatherproof that, um, during the coldest temps, bring them inside for a bit. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do to, to, to make that happen for, okay. sure, for sure. All right. So when it comes to training birds, uh, if you're out, collecting a bird um, I'm making quote signs here um you can you can trap that that first year you know fledgling mm-hmm. um or do people ever collect eggs or just little fuzzy chicks so uh collecting an egg isn't isn't legal okay um if, if you're a general level falconer so you've graduated out of your apprenticeship you're a general level or a master level falconer you can collect you can take a chick so okay. you could take a, a you know, a, what's called an IAS mm-hmm. um, and then imprint that bird. Uh, but we'll back up. We'll go through a little bit of, of uh, kind of the approaches on both. So okay. we'll pretend we're a brand new apprentice falconer. We've got our license. We trapped our first bird, training that bird. Yep. So it's a wild bird. It looks a lot like an adult, except its plumage is going to be different because it's a juvenile. Got it. Um, the, the first thing we do is just teach trust. So we bring that bird home and we just teach it to accept our presence. And we... Mm-hmm mostly do that with food, right? So we, we bring the bird out. If it's hooded, we'll unhood it. And as soon as we're unhooding it, we're making sure there's food available there. So we like, look, my presence means good stuff, right? Yep. Just get them to trust you. We, we want them to be comfortable enough to eat in our presence um, and to not freak out with us around. Uh, if we're going to be hunting with a dog, we're going to add that in. We're going to make sure the dog's around. Uh, yeah, I was going to we'll, get to that. Yeah, yeah. We, we can do more on that. But the, that seems the, like a whole other level of complicatedness. <laughs> the, but if you're going to do that, you, you want to make sure anything that bird is going to have to put up with in its new life is ex, is it's exposed to in those first, right. you know, that first okay. stages. Um, and you're teaching it that, you know, all this is good. It's a positive experience to be around me. It's a positive experience for my kids to be running by you in the living room, you know, that, all that sort of stuff. Um, once they're accepting of that and they'll eat in your presence, then we just start asking them to do a little bit more for that food. So we'll have them step to the glove. We'll have them hop to the glove a short distance. Well, then we'll have them fly to the glove a short distance. And then we just incrementally add that distance. Um, for something like a Harris's hawk, this, this process can happen very, very, very quickly. Um, but you, you're always pushing that. They learn so quick that you don't want to, you don't want to overtrain. You're always wanting to push. Okay. You got this. We're adding the next step in, um, for me, my goal with a bird that was wild taken is to get it back out free flying as quick as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. I want to maintain its its wild fitness. I want to maintain its you know all mm-hmm. its all its good things of being a wild bird. Um, and so we just extend that, get them flying to us from further distances. You might go outside with something that's called a creance, just a, a bit really long line. Uh, you might go to a, a, a lot of falconers will go to like a football field and just make sure the bird will fly them from that distance. Once they're doing that, how many falconers go out, and that first flight is the last flight for that bird? Uh, I don't know of any falconers that would. So if you have a good if you have a good sponsor, it should uh-huh. be zero, okay. right? All right. So that's part of the jo- sponsor's job is to make sure that they're going to track your progress. Okay. And uh, once you've done this a bit, you can tell when a bird's ready. You don't even have to put it on that long line to Got know it. when that bird's ready. Um, it might take you a little bit longer to bring get them back in, but that's it's yeah, it's okay. uncommon for that to happen. Um, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure it's happened right, right. <laughs> in my Falconer circles. I don't know of anybody who's had that first flight okay. happen, but again, that's the job of that, that sponsor is to making sure that, uh, that you're ready for that free flight. But I gotta ask you, so I always like to do this. Um, how long do you think it takes? We're going to talk about a, just a Harris's hawk from the day you trap it to the okay. first day you fly free. How long do you think that takes? Man, I don't I would think at least 
six weeks. Okay. That's a nice, yeah. that's a good guess. So, um, so I do education, um, a part-time job cause sort of a full-time job now, but, um, I get a lot of guesses around six months to a year. So okay. six months is, is, or six weeks is, is pretty good. Uh, on average though, uh, for Harris's hawk, for me, if I'm going to trap a Harris hawk this year, and I'm going to fly that bird. If it's not ready to fly around two weeks, I probably really would fast. reconsider whether that bird is a good fit for falconry. No kidding. Um, so if you're gonna be a little conservative, you're a little worried, maybe three weeks, yeah. is, you know, um, but, Certainly, if you're taking more than four weeks of that bird and there's no complications like health or some sort of weird setback yeah. that you can kind of point to, if it's taking longer than that, that bird's probably not going to be a great fit for, for what we're doing. Um, my wife, uh, in our circle of friends, set the first record. Not only did she have a nice early free flight, she caught her very first head of game, cottontail rabbit, with her second bird that she trained in 17 days. No okay. trap to the first catch in 17 days. Um, and then uh, our best friend... Uh, we, we like to give him a hard time that he tried to one-up my wife, but he ended up doing it in 13 days. Wow. Yeah, first free flight was 11 days in. Wow. And then first catch in, in 13 days. So it can it can happen very, very That's quickly. That's amazing, yeah. Um, that, that sort of relationship, it, you know, and this is going to vary depending on the skill set of the falconer and all that, but um, the as long as you can show that bird your value, mm -hmm. and the quicker you can do that, the better it's going to be. And so that, for me, that brings into another point. You talked to a lot of hunters. Being so, a good hunter is part of being a good falconer. Oh, I would imagine. If you can't, yeah. if you can't know that I'm going to go into this field and I know I can flush a certain number of rabbits within an hour, if you can't do that, your bird's going to be like, why am I sticking around right, with right. this person, yeah. right? So. Yeah, that's the same thing with new hunters. If it's someone who's never spent any time in the outdoors, it's going to take a little while. Yeah. If it's somebody that has spent their life backpacking and camping and stuff, yeah. they're, they're going to, yeah, yeah, just take off. Um, man, that's interesting. So it really is kind of a partnership. The bird recognizes you as a resource. Um, so is there any level, and maybe this is just in my like kind of ooey gooey like imagination of how things should be, but like any kind of like relationship outside of just a give and take partnership. I mean, do you get attached to your birds? Oh, I mean, as the falconer, yes. Okay, but the birds don't really get attached to you. <laughs> not, not okay. in the way we do. I mean, right. there, there is, there is some element of that. If you imprint a bird, there can be a bit of pair bonding where they might even court you to come the next season because they get, they're a little confused about their relationship yeah. of bird and human. Um, you know, so the bird I have this year, the bird I, f I flew last year, he's a, he's an imprint goshawk, uh -huh. uh, captive bred, by the way. Um, and, uh, our relationship is definitely more – it's a bit more than just like, hey, Nate and the dogs set up quail flights for me, right? You know, Even now, he's, he's, he's fat. He's not at his peak flight weight. He's yeah. not super fit. He's molting through the summer. Um, and he gets to just hang out in his, in his muse. Uh, but I go in twice a week and, and clean out his muse. And uh, he's, he's excited to see me. But honestly, it, it probably is a bit of a holdover of – it's a, it's a conditioned response. Like uh -huh. I've always been a positive force right, in his right. life. And so even if we're not going to go hunting, like Nate being around is good stuff. Sure. And so it, it's not, it'd be cool if they were like murder parrots, right? So birds that were like <laughs> macaws that just wanted to come. Oh, I just wanted to be your friend and, and talk to you. And, and then also go hunting story, together. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. no, it's, it's, you, we love them way you know, more than you don't get that by looking at them. No. I mean, you, no. you can, you know, call it gestalt, call it whatever you want, but, a lot of times you can look at an animal. I don't know. I'm getting too anthropomorphic. No, here. no, but, you, but you, you're not. You're not wrong. You can. You, you see. look at a bird of prey and you're like, you're just a killing machine. Yeah. that's all you yeah. care about. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And you know that being said, I 
I love my bird, man. Yeah. I, you know, and any bird I've done well with and been successful with. And for me, that's my own thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's this, uh, it's talking about conditioning. When right. I see my bird, I think about those days in the field and those yeah. successful hunts and, and the partnership and so. when he worked hard and, and, you know, overcame a, a challenge and, and still came home successful. Like, um, you know, there's no, no bones about it. Uh, falconers are times on these birds. We, we love and adore them, but it's, it's mostly one-sided. Right. Yeah. yeah kind of like my daughter's cat puddles. Yes. She yes. barely tolerates us because yeah. we feed her. You know, I've, I've got this, uh, I've got this hypothesis on cats and how like, you know, an Instagram feed is, is nothing but cats being jerks now, right? Yeah. When I was a kid, I had really good cats, like loving good cats. But that was a time when cats were outdoor cats. Like Puddle, she doesn't go outside because I care about wildlife, right? Mm-hmm. Um, good for you. But when I was a kid, all our cats were outdoor cats. We didn't know any better. And 90% of them didn't come home at some point, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I had two cats out of many that, that lived right. One that died of old age. Um, and she was an outdoor cat. She just, she won the lottery, I guess. But I feel like jerk cats back then were taken out of the genetic pool. <laughs> and nowadays, now that all cats are all indoor cats, they all get to live. Yeah. Well, and, and those, I think there's also something to be being expressed. Yeah. I also think there's something to be said for in some of the dog communities you refer to it as drive satisfaction, right? So if those hunting cats were, they, you, yeah, know, you get they a frustrated house hunt, cat that right. doesn't get to do no, what it was born No, that's a good point. Do. That's so. a really good point. I had to consider that. That's solid. Yeah, yeah maybe Puddles just isn't living her fullest <laughs> yeah. life, but she's not I'm going to be out there she's to get the bird either. populations, right. man. What are you doing? Yep. So. All right. Well, digress. Um, all right. So let's talk about the dog element. Two things. One, I assume you get your your hawks to or your, to recognize um a dog the way they recognize you is is a a product of good things. But two, how do you get your dog not to see your hawk as, as a bird they're supposed to grab? So this is, it's great segue to you because you wanted to go down different training modules and different approaches. Um, but as far as that, how not to get your dog to look at the bird as something to go after. I realize I'm gonna give you a hard time here. I realize Mm -hmm. as a gentleman who hunts a German dog, that uh, having a dog who doesn't go after non-target quarry. <laughs> well, that just sounds racist to me. But. <laughs> um, all in good fun. Some of the some of the best dogs out there, are Germans. But uh, uh, you know, most bird dogs, most broke bird dogs, don't look at anything other than you know quarry. What they're trained to go after is yep. anything to be serious about. Like he doesn't think of my bird as anything different than. Um, than a dicky bird, right? Like yeah. just the same way you get a good bird dog who doesn't, who stops pointing, you know, metal larks, sure. right? Except just like a dog learns when you're getting your hunting boots on and your shotgun ready, yeah. when he sees me load up my bird to go, my dogs, go. you know, my dogs know that we're going hunting. So they, they recognize that opportunity as well. So I guess there's no trained retrieving in those dogs though. They're just point. They so, find the birds. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm a versatile hunter. I hunt over shotgun. In fact, my bird dogs were both uh, you know, my, my oldest bird dog, um, you know, her first season, we exclusively, when we decided to, to target, um, you know, game birds, so quail uh-huh. primarily, it was, it was a, just a solid gun season. Okay. So she's trained just like any gun dog, you mm-hmm. know, so she, she points, um, she retrieves. I allow her to flush because it helps me with my falconry. And so she does point, flush and retrieve. Um, and she just knows that if a bird's on it, she doesn't get to retrieve it. Okay. You know, just like a, I mean, a, some dogs wouldn't do this, but a good dog shouldn't go steal a bird retrieved out From of another dog. dog's mouth, yep. right? Yep. So it's it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's they learn to respect that bird. Okay. And most birds will dish out that respect if it's not already there. Oh yeah. So it, you know, if one of my dogs gets a little too close to to 
uh, my hawk when he's on a kill, you know, they're going to get it. They're going to get a foot in the face and okay. it's not comfortable. And, sure. um, they, they, they learn, um, it really is amazing when you see the partnership and you're like, how is this possible? Yeah. But if you're around good bird dogs, you realize like it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't take much. It's not a big leap um, right. to, to realize that oh, this, this means hunting opportunity. Um, now if you have a dog who really, the retrieve was everything. It was really dependent on that as yeah. seeing as the reward that might be tough uh, for that good, dog. Good falconer uh, dog. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, are, are there particular breeds of, of bird dogs that the falconers prefer? I, I would say no. Um, every, just like any, any upland hunter is going to have their own preferences. Yeah. I, I, I know falconers who hunt every range of, mm -hmm. of, of a bird dog. There's a, there's a tendency towards the versatile breeds, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, any of that would be at least considered. Sure. Versatile. So pretty short hairs. You, know, um, you know, in all this talk so far, we haven't mentioned eagles. Yeah. So, um, so going to the federal regs, uh, falconers are not allowed to use uh, bald eagles. Okay. Um, but, uh, but golden eagles do have a place in falconry. In fact, there's some art, um, yeah, the Mongolians. Right? Yeah. There's some evidence that, that eagles might've been the first birds used in falconry. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a rich, rich history of, of eagle falconry, particularly golden eagles. And, you know, most people think of Mongolian falconers. Um, there's a, there's still a lot of regulation, a lot of red tape to navigate hunting mm -hmm. an eagle. You know, we talked about apprenticeship, then you move to a general level falconer, then after seven years or a master level falconer, kind of the penultimate step of, of falconry is that eagle license. It's actually a separate credential on your falconry license. And you have to, you have to be a master level falconer. So you have to be practicing falconry for seven years. Um, and you have to have two letters from other falconers, like stating your, um, your, you know, bona fides to be able to fly a, a, yeah. a golden eagle. Um, and then that's just to be qualified to, to be on a list to get one. Uh, acquiring a golden eagle in the, in the United States is difficult. Um, yeah, I bet it is. The, once you have that permit, mm -hmm. is it a season? It's, uh, or is it kind of till you get your bird? So there's there's a lot that goes into that. I'm, there definitely is a season. So most of the, the – the, there's six golden eagles allowed every year for falconry. Okay. Um, and that's Arizona. That's the United States. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, wow. Six. And it goes further than that. They have to be depredation eagles. So, okay. Um, so eagles being a problem somewhere. Yes. So that means you could, like, get stuck with mature eagle. Then. Well, you – not necessarily. So or, what, or what, the young what, ones what falconers will do is they'll go up into these areas, they help trap and relocate, and they kind of get to like, you know, they spend a considerable amount of time. You can't okay. just go up there, grab your eagle and go. You're, you're in, the intent is that you're going to be there and you're helping trap and relocate. Until you the find others, the one. And then you might, yeah, you're going to pick wow. yours. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, in a lifetime endeavor, you know? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Golden Eagle Falconry, so it's a, it's a whole nother thing. And it's, it's really, so probably one of the best Eagle Falconers in the in the country. Her name's Lauren McGow. She's amazing. She spent two years cumulatively over in Mongolia learning Eagle yeah. Falconry. Spent some time in, in uh, Scotland as well. Um, but uh, you know, she she talks at length about this. But that there's not anything particularly harder about an eagle, except mm -hmm. the margin for error is really small. Yeah. If you, if you anger yeah. an eagle, right, that's a big bird and, and it can hurt you. Um, but the the practicality of hunting a golden eagle, most falconers are don't have the resources. They don't have the land. They don't have the open terrain. You know, um, if these prairies that you have around here, mm -hmm. they're beautiful. If they had jackrabbits in them, this would be they ideal. Do. They, they do. do. They yeah. do. Okay, so. Um, what about things like, though, Okay, I guess this is a whole other uh, direction we can go, but 
what species are legal to your falcon. And then if you're hunting in a, in a place with like prairie dogs down south where they're, they're protected, how do you get around that? Yeah, so uh, falconers are – we have regs just – we have regs for taking our birds and uh -huh. we have regs for what we hunt with our birds. So uh, if you – you know, any fowl, any hunter who opens up their, their guidelines, you know, the hunting mm -hmm. guidelines, in there you'll see your, your seasons, right? You might have general – shotgun limited weapon and then below that there's often a little thing little falconry, falconry right yeah. falconry season um and so there's falconry season for for all of our our game animals the, often they're extended uh bag limits can be different mm -hmm. um so uh rabbits are year-round for everybody yeah. us too um but uh bag limits recently changed unfortunately really affecting right. falconers the, yeah. the the possession limit in particular we feed our birds from what we catch right and we can only keep 15 rabbits now okay and that, well, what about domestic rabbits so yes but and it's nice to not like that you know i can catch 100 rabbits a year yeah i don't have to buy food for my bird when yeah. i'm catching it but now if i have to get domestic you know so it, it definitely is a real issue i understand why they did it yeah but the, the you know disease um but we uh so we're beholden to, to limits as well and and seasons uh you know i'm a i my primary focus these days is quail. Um, we have an extended season, but we have a reduced limits. So yeah. uh, my my daily limit with a with a falconry raptor is three. So I can't I can put my bird away, pull out the shotgun if I'm in general season, get twelve more. But if once if I hit three, I'm done with my bird. Um, you know, so each each animal. Well, that's, that's funny to me that they it would is have. Funny to me. It's a conversation I'd like to have with with game and fish. I wonder someday. why because uh, it, it can't be easier to do it. It's with a certainly not easier. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. Um, so it's a weird thing, I, and I'm not sure the reasoning. I'd love to have that conversation with them someday. But uh, but yeah, so we we do have those regulations, and then you know what you you might have an incidental catch, right? You're out chasing a chasing a quail, mm -hmm. and a, a, a curb-billed thrasher thrush, uh, flushes, right? Anybody who's hunted gambles quail knows that that's a that's a real possibility. Um, your bird may go after that, and if they do catch it, um, you know, we're, we're going to not try to set up that on purpose, right? We're going to do everything we can to not let that happen. Part, Falkyrie is hunting, and so our, when we hunt, we have a target species that we're going after. So we're trying to set up the scenario that I'm getting quail, I'm getting duck, I'm getting, you know. Um, so you can minimize a lot of uh, bycatch, you know, or, or, you know, miscellaneous catches like that, but it, def it definitely can happen. Uh, if they catch something that they're not supposed to catch, uh, the regulations state that we are allowed to let the bird feed on it. We cannot take possession, right? Okay. So, um, that so means does the bird immediately kill the animal as if they would, or do they usually hold it till you get there? It depends. So, um, my bird that I have now, my goshawk, if because of the proximity, the way I hunt, and how up close and personal most of the time it is, and he's so good at being an imprinted bird too. This helps um, that he's been trained from day one to trade off what he catches with like really good manners and. I can trade him off most things if I want to, right? Mm -hmm. So if he catches something that's not on the list, um, you know, I can get up to him and I can get him off that bird, um, you know, whatever it might have been that he caught. Uh, but that's not always the case. You know, maybe your bird catches it 300 yards away from you. By the time you get there, he's already uh, mm -hmm. made in, is what we call it, and started eating. So if he does that, you know, we have to we leave it lay, let the bird, you know. Yeah. Um, eat, eat its fill and then, and then we move on. So okay. it, it, it can happen. It's, you know, out of, I've caught a lot of stuff and it's, a, you know, it's yeah. definitely happened, but it's a very small percentage, you know, okay. a handful of times sure. that we've caught non-target species. Interesting. So are most huntable small game species available to the falconer then? Yes. Yeah. I, I, everything small game is available for, okay. for falconers. Even stuff that's oddly enough, the Quatamundi is available for falconry. Uh, and, I don't know you who know, would do I, that, but. Well, I took a Quatamundi 
great. I yeah. would not put my bird at risk with that. Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I did it with a gun. Yeah. But, um, you know, they're such a unique animal. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't call them rare. Yeah. But they're of limited distribution. Yeah. And they're special yeah. to me. You yeah. know, and to, in the big picture, they're no more special than a rabbit, but they're special to me. Yes. Uh, and I finally decided, you know what? I'm going to take one. I'm going to make tamales out of it. It's, it's, I want to try it. Yeah. And I, and I shot one finally on a slow javelina. I strapped it to the back of my pack. And I, and I mean, there was a long day. We put miles and miles in, and I lost it. Oh, no. I felt like the biggest jerk in the world, oh, man. man. It felt terrible. But uh, I haven't shot one since. I was going to ask you how it tastes, <laughs> but yeah, dang. I've heard that's... they're good. I mean, I, you know, I'm of the school of thought. You know, in, in the hunting circles, you get a lot of misinformation. Oh, 100%. Um, oh, so I, I hunt a lot of jackrabbit. I judge anybody as jack far Jackrabbit as... is delicious. Yes, exactly. So if we start a conversation on what tastes good. The antelopes are some of the best it, meat available right around in the desert. I 100% agree. Um, and the blacktails are great. Yeah. So I don't know. We, we ate jackrabbit the other night. What did I make with those? I served them to somebody. But we ate jackrabbit the other night. It was great. Yeah, if you tell tonight, me that jackrabbit is a good eating, tacos. then I'm not going to trust anything you say on every yeah. game animal. Um, so, yeah. But unfortunately, you're going to hear that a lot. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's a sad case. But so, in my opinion, there's not a lot of meats out there that are bad as yes, long as yeah. they're not properly taken That's care true. of. And I'm yeah, sure Aquatamundi's good, yeah. good yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to try one. And I haven't brought myself to shoot another one because I felt so bad about That's that. That's a shame. But. All right. Um, what have we not covered here? Uh, so you asked about dog. So, um, yep. yes, uh, we talked about eagle dog stuff. Um, yeah, and I'll rewind a little bit on the, the dog integration and kind of also touching on imprinting a bird and how mm -hmm. that process is a little bit different. When you start with a bird that's a, a you know, fuzzy little white baby, right? It's, okay. It doesn't, hasn't grown its feathers. You have to be the parent. So you're, you're raising it up. You're providing the, all the food for it. Uh, once it starts feathering out, you need to start teaching it that it needs to stop looking for you for mm -hmm. food and it needs to look away from you for food um, because it needs to hunt, right? So in the wild, a, a parent just starts being stingy about what it's bringing. Okay. And the, the kids start chasing stuff right. and, and learning how to do that. But when you're raising it and that bird gets annoying and starts nagging at you because mom, dad, feed me, mom, dad, feed me, you can't just fly away. Yeah. Right. And so you have to set up training scenarios to uh, teach that bird to look away from you, to, to, to that you don't just bring food and that you are now somebody who sets up opportunities to chase and catch its own food. Um, and so, you know, incorporating the dog on that will, we'll, you know, when I raised my goshawk last year, my dog was there for every training scenario. So, he, you know, my bird learned that dog also means, you know, hunting opportunities. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, I'd set up a lure machine and I'd set up, uh, you know, a, a, a domestic cartoonics, you know, frozen quail sure. and a lure machine and start teaching the bird, you know, build fitness and things like that. Those are all things that you now have to take charge of when you're raising an, an imprint bird. Yeah. Um, that a wild bird would have already done. It would have already been flying around, getting fit, strong, and wise. And and um, you have to kind of take that place with, a, yeah. with an imprint bird. And so, um, and just yeah, having the dog be part of that process is is forming that that strong relationship. Honestly, when I go out hunting now um, with my goshawk and my and I have two Britneys. Um, I'm just at this point, just a voyeur. I get to just kind of watch the action. Yeah, my dogs you know, so. find the stuff, and the bird gets to you know the bird. My bird knows what my Garmin beat means when it says dog on point, and right. he gets excited and amped up and, and ready to go. So, Well, all right, two things. One, when I first moved to Arizona over a decade ago, 
uh, one of the very first jobs I took here uh, was monitoring a bald eagle nest on the Upper Verde. So I got to, I got to watch the whole process from copulation to fledging birds. Mm -hmm. um, that was fascinating. I mean, every single day I'm up there with my spotting scope watching the interactions, the parents, the food coming in. So I got to see a lot of what you're talking about. Um, oh, and I forgot my other point I was going to make. Never mind that. I'll come back okay. to it, I suppose. But uh, but it was fascinating uh, to watch these animals and and how they interact with their young. But you know, unfortunately, when they fledged, my job was over. Yeah, I was done. I was there to take care of the nest and, and keep people out of there and collect data. And then I left. But it, you know, it was great to have a successful nest. Number one, because a lot of times they're not successful. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, both of my both of my chicks, you know, made it and, and fledged and. And uh, left the nest, but so I didn't get to see anything after that. But I will tell you another cool thing about that job as well. I had my point, I sat on every day and I watched my nest, but right below my point, between me and the bald eagle nest, there was a heron rookery. Okay. And it had it had great egrets, it had blue herons, it had night herons. Um, and I mean, just a bunch of birds, right? So, and I got to watch all that. I got to watch them build the nest. I watched the courtship, the copulation, all of it. And as they're raising their, ba their babies up, a golden eagle starts coming in, and he makes one raid every single day. Um, and <laughs> it's it, it was it was horrible though because the I mean birds are intelligent uh, animals, yeah. right? Um, and you know the, the all of the 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 parent herons would get so upset, and they they come up off the nest at the last minute, fly around, and and you know one nest was going, you know, yeah. and that eagle would hit a nest. Pick, pick with the babies apart, right in front of mom and dad. All the other herons would settle back in. But those parents would sit off here to the side and watch their babies be torn apart. And they would make these mournful, guttural cries. It was a terrible thing to see. So it became this... I mean, it was, it was fascinating too, but it became this like race to get those herons fledged and out of the nest before it became their herons. Absolutely. It's, but, you know, it... it um, the spider falling. Oh, nice. Coming down the thing there. It's, it's, you know, eagles are kind of a bit top of the food chain there, but you know, raptors in general, that's, that is the reality too. being, being, um, you know, having their nest raided by other birds of prey. The oh, leading yeah. natural cause, cause of death for raptors is other raptors. Yeah. I, I, we were watching a red tail nest mm -hmm. and a great, a great, uh, forgive me. Great horn. Um, great horn yeah. owl came in and take them, take yep. it out. Yeah. They are, uh, great horns are, for a falconer in Arizona, you're, as far as a natural risk for you, that's going to be. But then also, that great horn owl took over that nest. <laughs> oh yeah, and had its oh, own babies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. They they don't make their own nest. They they just steal from <laughs> everybody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, um, kind of summing up some of it. One one of the things I always try to get, it's you know, looking at falconry and having context of like what you know, what, what are we looking at. Um, for me, the best way to look at it is that we're just small game hunters with mm -hmm. a very odd weapon choice. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, with a lot more, a lot more work yeah. into maintaining our weapon, and uh, you know, a lot of things that a small game hunter would do is what we're doing. Uh, you know, for my 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 falconry right now with quail hawking looks exactly like an upland hunter. Right? You know, my dogs, you know, they yeah. corner field, they go on point. You know, I or the dog set up the flush, and instead of you know, shooting it on the wing, my bird leaves my bird. glove and pursues. So. so how does a bird react to like a flush of, of Mern's quail, a, a whole, a covey of 20, all blowing up at the same time? Is it unsettling to them as it is to us? So, uh, from what I understand evolutionarily, like that's why they do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's to and, uh, fluster them so they don't know what to do. Or Now I actually watched that tactic work for my young bird. Yeah. My baby goshawk out there trying to figure out what he was doing. Yeah. When he was a baby, 
confused. He yeah. he couldn't figure out which one to chase. He he'd false start on one, and then he'd be like, "Ooh, there's one over there," and <laughs> yeah. he'd go to that. I mean, we we lost so many what should have been quail in the bag because he just was overwhelmed. After a couple months, he figured that out. Okay. You know, and he would pick one and he would mow it down like, yeah. or try. You know, we we didn't catch every time, but um, but he was committed and and less like that didn't work anymore. So those tactics clearly are there and they work and they work for the young you know dumb birds. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those young raptors might not ever figure it out before they're successful enough to live and continue. Very much the know, same for so. for people hunters. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, the, but the, you know, with a falcon relationship. You know, we can take this back to trapping a wild young bird. You know, I'm a, I'm a falcon. I might trap a bird who's four months old. It's left the nest. It's hunting on its own. Um, and I'm going after quail and I'm flying a cooper's hawk. Uh, it, that wild cooper's hawk would be flustered. He's trying to figure out those quail flushes. And then maybe he doesn't eat that day. Yeah. With me as a falconer, he, he gets to try again tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And then maybe by, maybe by the end of the season, I can let that bird go and, you know, take the summer off and then do it again next season. And that bird gets a, a leg up. You know, there's not a lot of data tracking it, but it stands to reason that um, that bird had a chance to succeed and fail and make it through. So, have there juvenile. been any studies done on unreleased birds? There's there's uh, a handful. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal, sure. you know, reports from from falconers. I know of birds that I've released that I saw months later, um, but there's not hard evidence on it. The way the way it's looked at is once a falconer's trapped that bird, it's 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 um, it's biologically dead. And so they're not putting a lot of effort into tracking what happens after. Yeah. I think it'd be cool. I would love yeah, to be able no. to have hard data on it to know. No. Um, but uh, I, I've, I, I wonder have, where, you know, migration would, would fall into that too, if they can pick that back up again. Yeah. So it, it just depends, you know, Tucson area, a lot of our birds are pretty resident. Like even our Cooper's hawks yeah. are pretty non-migratory in that area. You know, some will, will leave, but they did, they've done a lot of banding studies and, and a lot of our Tucson birds yeah. just stay there, you know, yeah. and, and Harris hawks, they're not migratory either. So they're sticking around, but, um, you know, it's definitely a lot of anecdotal, but I know a lot of falconers who've tracked their birds, um, after release and, right. and they're, you know, continue to be successful. If you, if you released a bird that never had any hunting success, mm -hmm. that'd be a different story. But if you yeah. have a bird that's hunting and doing well and, and has learned from its mistakes with you and, um, you know, it's definitely going to have a, a leg up. Yeah. No, I, I can see how they would still be successful. I mean, that's, that's what they do. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And a lot of people are confused about that, but like, but it's like, we're not, while we use food to train them initially, they're providing. I guess the issue might be their relationship to people. I mean, are, are there cases where, you know, well, hey, there's there's a guy with his dog. I'm going to go down there and hang out. <laughs> um, so they can be pretty picky about who, who, they, keep company who they keep company with. Yeah. yeah so a lot of birds are there. They, they might be good with you and your dog. Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, I do a lot, put a lot of effort into making sure my hawk will hunt over other people's dogs. Yeah. You know, if you've got a broke dog, I'd love for you to join me in the field, right? That's always something I, I would, oh, I would be like terrified. Edward would like chomp well, your bird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, it, if your bird was a, was a good hunting bird upon release, they go back to being wild pretty quick okay. and, and don't tend to have issues with where it can be a problem is if you had a bird that wasn't a good hunter. You I can totally see that. It, like a snake. Yeah. Um, you know, now if you raise a, a raccoon and let it go, or like I had a possum uh, in college, yeah. uh, found it as a little bitty tiny baby. Mom was smashed in the middle of the road. I, I, I don't think I can get in trouble for this at this point. It was <laughs> land between the lakes in the middle of Kentucky. Little bitty tiny possum. 
And I don't know, man, it's in the middle of a, like a big old asphalt ocean and mom squished. And I'm like, I'm not going to leave it here. I put it in my pocket, taking it home with full intent of getting hold of a rehabber. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I started research because I, I don't know, I was busy or something. I started researching, you know, it's diet and this and that. And turns out possums are very complicated animals that need an extremely varied diet. But as time went on, I never made it to the rehabber. And two years later, I've got this giant Kentucky possum, a <laughs> big old male. And it's like he was not really a pet. I mean, he was, but more of a roommate. And he would just uh, he'd poddle, poddle around duh, 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 on the floor. And possums, you know, I learned so much from keeping him. He's such a unique – I mean, more teeth than any other mammal in North America – their scrotum drops in front of the penis, which was really confusing to me. <laughs> a forked penis. Um, so I didn't even know what it was for a while when he was little. Um, and when he was little, he would gather up things like underwear or socks in his tail and roll them up and carry them around with him. Uh, see, he's just fascinating. So he's so weird. But it's like people like to say possums are dumb, right? Because they get ran over on roads. But Evolution doesn't work at the same pace no. as society does, yeah, so that's an unfair yeah. argument. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they're not evolved to yeah. equip to deal with roads and vehicles screaming down them. But um, he would bite people. Uh, he wouldn't bite me because I'd flick him on the nose since he was a baby every time he'd bite me. But neighbors or friends would come over, and, you know, especially if they're barefoot, you know, he'd just come up and sniff and jump. Um, and they're, oh, my God, the, the canines on that thing wow. are huge, like an inch and a half. But um, and it wasn't on a meanness. It just it occurred to me. It's like okay, well, possums are slow. They have tiny little brains. That's how they do it. They have extremely varied diets. Giant mouthful of teeth, and they just go around chomping the hell out of everything. And that's how they live. So that's how he did it. Yeah. Um, but uh, eventually, you know, I met my girlfriend's my wife and followed her off. So I did find a rehab for him. But it was two years later. He lived with me a long time. But that's amazing. They're incredible animals. I've never been around them but i've always found yeah. them fascinating creatures. so sure. i guess the whole point That's, of that was i got off on just as far as the, the ability to go back releasing to him yeah. yeah he might have been okay possums only live like three years in the world okay. anyway yeah. um but uh so he was already reaching the end of his age in captivity i'm sure you could get five or seven years out of him but um i don't know how well he would have done yeah you know yeah but a snake yeah catch a wild snake keep it for a while let it go it's still gonna be a snake yeah. still gonna know how to hunt yeah. well and, and that plays into what we talked about what we kind of started with about apprentices not allowed but, to take imprint birds and, and raise yeah. the fluffy downies because those birds don't do well yeah. being released. In, in fact, they shouldn't be released because we've taken that fear. The re- part of the reason why we imprint a bird is to, to eliminate fear. You want some fear in a mm-hmm. bird that's going to be in the wild. And so my imprint Gossock wouldn't do well in the wild because he's not afraid of a lot of things. But right. if you if you trap that bird as a not a baby, it's under a year old, it's a passage bird. When you release that bird, it's, it's just going right back to what it was doing you know, without you. But with probably some more hunting experience. Yeah, you know, I'm surprised though that it is legal to do that just because of the risks of releasing pathogens or viruses I th- back into wild populations. I think because it was like avian flu. It was already it was a wild bird. Then going back to being a wild bird, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, but it's a it's a long established practice and is certainly still a legal practice. Okay, do, interesting. So. so how many birds do you have? Uh, so I personally, I have one bird. Um, my, my wife has a, a bird as well. Uh, but I also, so along with being a falconer in, in February of 2020, I, um, decided I, this is just my thing about anything I get excited about. I love sharing it with others. I love passing it on. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, um, was talking to some other falconers about, uh, just educational opportunities. And, um, 
decided with some friends to, in February of 2020, we applied for our, it's called the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services uh, Falconry School license. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this allows us to do is, is to um, teach falconry to others, not necessarily prospective falconers, but just people who are, who are falconry curious. They, they, they maybe realize they don't ever want to, they, they can't commit to this lifestyle, yeah. but they'd like to experience it. They'd like to see what, what it's like. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating, man. Uh, absolutely. And so, you know, and we realize it too, that not everybody gets to do this, but we didn't feel like everybody shouldn't well, have an opportunity to experience is it. Is that how my buddy Doug got That's it? Yeah, okay. Don, right? Don, yeah, shit. Yeah, Don, Don, Don. Don. I'm sorry, Don. Yeah, so uh, we, we applied for this uh, this permit in, in February of 2020, best time ever to start a new adventure, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately, it, it's actually done well. It did well through the pandemic. Uh, but through the, the Falconry School, I have birds um, under my permit, so I'm the, I'm the principal officer for that permit. Okay. Uh, and so we have birds under that permit, uh, but they're... We have uh, five falconers that are that are under that permit, um, and so we have a bunch of birds for that. We've got some owls, we've got some falcons, we've got some other Harris hawks, all captive bred birds. So the uh-huh. birds for that permit all have to be by regulation captive bred. Interesting. Um, Is that why I start seeing like when I'm looking at falconry pictures, I see birds that are like with different colors or like piebald characteristics? Or- um, Potentially, there's you don't see a ton of that. In, yeah. in fact, I see I've seen more of that in wild variants than I oh. have in captive bred populations. Because okay. um, that does definitely happen. So leucistic, um, mm. leucistic red tails are like you know they, they pop up over the birding pages. Yeah, know, I like imagine people year. probably get something like that and try to express that gene through captive breeding. They've tr- uh, not really actually. Yeah. So the only thing that I know that's being expressed in is uh, dark morph red tails. So yeah, that's common in yeah, the nature too, though. Exactly. Yeah. So that's about the only one that's really uh, actually a relatively common captive breeding. Uh, but captive breeding is not super common. But there are enough breeders out there to, to source for for the falconers who want captive bred birds, um, and for you know falconry schools and education mm-hmm. programs like ours. So well, I have I have some birds under that, but for my own personal hunting bird, I've I've just got one for with you know what I do. I couldn't really do more than one bird at a time justice. Um, a falconer is allowed to keep three birds, you know, as mm-hmm. once you pass at apprentice level. But if you're a master falconer, you can actually keep five. Um, but we have more birds than that for the for the falconry yeah. school program. But those are two different, very different permits. So where are you guys all located? So we're, we're located down in Tucson. I mean, uh, there's that many of you guys down there. Uh, so there's four of us, um, and there's a there's. Couple dozen falconers in Tucson area, but really? uh, so there's there's a group of four of us that started. It's no my idea. wife and I, and then our, our best friends Brian and Carissa Wood, excellent, amazing falconers, um, and uh, we went into this together. And and then our fifth falconer is actually Jamaica Smith over in Kingman, Arizona. Yeah, and uh, who also um, incredible falconer, twenty plus twenty five plus years I think now. Um, but uh, yeah, so she works with us as well, and so she does she does programs out there in Kingman. Uh, but we we have our hawk walk, which is our kind of our our um, our prime experience that we offer, and that's what Don came out on. He came out with, okay. with his father the first time. Yeah, and he came out a second time with his, with his girlfriend, yeah. and it's really it's like a guided hunt. So we go out with a, with a captive bred Harris okay. hawk. We talk a little bit about Falconry. We kind of discuss some of what we talked about today with uh, just how to do this. Like if you leave today inspired, here's here's the process, and then uh, we talk a little bit about history, and then we go out and we fly a bird. We go chase okay. some rabbits and and. Uh, uh, and then we, you know, before that, we give them a chance to hold the bird. To, to, we teach them how to call it to the glove, how to do a little bit of handling, um, and, and, you know, just give them that kind of that 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 front row falconry experience and and see real falconry. So there's a lot of there are falconry schools out there that do the hands on part, the yeah. show and tell. Uh, we really our group of falconers are very hardcore hunting falconers. We yeah. we are very firm about preserving falconry as a hunting sport and a hunting mm-hmm. tradition. And we wanted to make sure that we, with our falconry education experience that that's what we were doing too. That it wasn't just like 
you know, just a show and tell. And so, you know, we bring folks out and, and uh, no kidding. warn them in advance. They might see a rabbit, you know, uh, get caught. But uh, uh, it's been a blast. It's been just one of the most rewarding things ever to, to, to be able to share it with others. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, from a hunting, uh, uh, like, PR perspective, uh-huh. we've had people come out just absolutely anti-hunter, anti-seeing anything sure. die. And then by the time they leave, like, completely kind of flip that narrative and, yeah. and think about it in a very, very different yeah, way. Yeah, I, I think uh, any thoughtful hunter in a lot of cases can flip that narrative. Absolutely. As long as you're absolutely. not a jerk, as yeah. long as you don't throw it in their face or call them stupid. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that we have in common with most anti-hunters is we love animals. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the biggest part, yeah. you know. Um, so if you're if you're open to having a good conversation yeah. um, and, and, you know, being gentle in your approach, you can do and a, that's, a lot more. That's uh, our, you know, two of our mission statements. One is, is increase awareness of conservation issues for birds of prey and, and uh, be a good positive role model for hunters and, 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 a, and a kind of a gateway, a gateway right. drug for good. For good. I love to hear so. that. Um, man, I got so many questions. I could do this forever. Is it where we're on <laughs> we, I can come back half. You know, yeah. next year. It's yeah. <laughs> well, I want to get on the field with you, man. Absolutely. Um, I want to get my little boy out there too. Cause for me, I'm I'm too busy and I'm too much of a generalist to do this. Is mm-hmm. as, as intrigued as I am, and it's cool, man. And I could I could really go down this rabbit hole. Um, but my little boy, he's been talking about it for a year now. If he stays on this train of thought, maybe I can do this vicariously through him. Yeah, there you so, go. Um, but another thing that's been bothering me is like I like to eat game. Uh-huh. So can I just feed my birds chicken? And eat the wild stuff. <laughs> so uh, you know, you talked about we talked about eating jackrabbit before. So uh, when I was hunting a lot more rabbits, mm-hmm. I had a lot more you know meat that I was able to share with my hawks. Yeah. And you know, I had caught a bunch of game actually before I decided to like I'm going to eat what they're bringing home for me. And uh, that was like a full circle experience. Just a completely, I, mean, I get overly romantic sometimes on just the the whole thing, right? Yeah. But just sitting there with a with a you know rabbit stew and my bird over there preening and taking a bath after a successful yeah. hunt and eating what we did. It's just, it was just, just awesome, awesome experience. Oh, it's wonderful. So, I, you know, I ate a lot of what they caught. Um, yeah. You talk about antelope jackrabbits, uh, the bird my wife now God, flies. So good. Um, I targeted those for an entire season with her. I and would too. she was so good at catching them. They're a hard oh. quarry for, for oh, a yeah. hawk to catch. But I mean, they're a hard quarry for a rifle yes, too. They yeah. jump up and run like, they don't just run 80 yards and stop. They run miles yeah. so we we turned her into a specialist and she's actually one of the only hawks i know of to have done it solo there's a couple of gossip yeah. friends i've had that come down and done it but um for like bootios parabootios and things like that yeah, i guess you need probably details. a pretty big bird for those not so petra is the bird that does this and she's actually on the uh kind of middle range so yeah she's the middle. harris hawk yep, yep okay. she's a harris hawk um she's 920 yeah, grams and um, you know, big female Harris is like actually 12. Wow. So she's actually on the smaller end. Big antelope jackrabbit just taking for a ride. It, yeah. So an extra couple hundred grams doesn't seem to be enough. It's technique. Yeah. It's all, it's all okay. technique. Um, you know, she got her butt whooped a few times before she figured out how to do it. Um, and antelope jackrabbits, the first time she ever chased one, is stopped and bowed up at her. And she's like, wrong rabbit, my bad. And when the perch on the tree was like, nope. <laughs> no And kidding. so I found out that initially wow. I had to keep him running. So I, I wasn't, I didn't have a, she didn't really like dogs. So I was a dog. So I'd be just like a madman yelling and running to try to keep the rabbit running yeah. so it was looking like prey for her uh-huh. until she built enough confidence that even when they'd stop she'd be like cool i got you yeah um so uh so yeah we shared a lot of those meals as far as uh 
as far as my my goshawk, uh, you know, the most we've ever caught is two quail one day. So I we don't catch enough for me to be able to share with them. Okay. But you could you could you could get farm raised quail yeah. and like farm raised yeah. rabbits and things like that, and and totally still eat. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Well, man, this is just about the coolest thing on earth. I, I would agree. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say, but speaking of eating game, we have some Havelina tacos and oh, margaritas awesome. to get into here. And our wives have been kicked outside this yeah, whole time. Yeah. So we're proud to let them back in. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Th- this has really been fun and super interesting to me. I just, I, I, yeah, this stuff is cool. Well, thank you for having me. I'd, uh, there's definitely a lot to talk about. I'd be happy to come back yeah. on and you are welcome. I, I want to get into the captive husbandry too, that okay. side of it, but that's a whole yeah. other conversation, yeah. I guess. But yeah, we can, we can do a part two. Okay. We'll bring you out in the field this this season for sure. Man, I can't wait. All right. Thanks, Nate. Of course. Thank you. I told you that is, that's some crazy stuff, huh? Um, Absolutely fascinating. Uh, At least I was, boy. Um, I am intrigued as can be over falconry. Again, I had no idea that it was that complex. I mean, I'm... Why wouldn't it be? You know, you're working with these amazing animals and it just defies all logic that we can do this, you know? Yeah, in ancient, we'll call it art form, these these birds are amazing. To be able to work that closely with them is just something really special. Uh, I, I'm very intrigued. Uh, I might not take it all on myself, but I'm going to get closer to it one way or the other. I'm definitely going to go down and do some hunting with Nate this fall. And the thing is, you can too. You can do that through his Tucson Falconry Experiences. I will have a link to his website in the show notes below. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed my time with Nate. And I can't imagine you know, getting out in the field with him and his birds. It's going to be a blast. So, yeah, take advantage of that opportunity because not everybody gets to do this sort of thing and get a hold of him. Yeah, again, look in the show notes for, uh, for that link. Um, otherwise, sorry for the pause and, uh, it's good to be back. Don't forget Arizona wildlife federation makes this possible. Arizona wildlife federation is 100 years old this year. And, um, yeah, hundred years of doing conservation in Arizona. That's crazy, but uh, I'm proud to be a part of it. And, uh, and I love, I love talking to these interesting folks about these fa- interesting and important topics and bringing them to you. So hang in there and uh, tune back in in two weeks and we'll be back with another show. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.